Welcome to episode 18 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 7th, 8th and 9th of September 2021. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Hi Mark, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm great, thanks Brian. It's, it's been one of those nice times of year where we haven't struggled to find news. There's been some really key stories that have come out in recent weeks, hasn't there? There has indeed, Mark, and much of it's around, of course, the government legislation going forward, competency, the steering groups, etc., etc. So there's lots of news going on, yes. Yeah, there's a lot for us to go through today, Brian. So I think we should just go straight into the news as we always do. If you don't mind, I'm going to head off with the first one that I thought, a story that you wrote, which was which was really key. So this was the government publishes its response to a public consultation on fire safety issues. So the government has published a 74-page response to the public fire safety consultation process that ran from July to October last year, which provided a summary of the responses it's received and setting out the next steps that the government will take to strengthen fire safety for all regulated buildings. Obviously particularly topical with a new building safety regulator coming in, Brian. So the fire safety consultation contained 139 questions aimed at identifying what, if any, policy or legislative changes are needed to improve fire safety. The consultation document outlined proposals designed to strengthen the fire safety order and also to improve compliance in all regulated premises implemented the Grenfell Tower Inquiry Phase 1 report and also the recommendations that require a change in law and improve the effectiveness of consultation between the building control bodies and the fire and rescue authorities on planning for building work and the arrangements for the handover of fire safety information. As you can see, there's already a lot to digest here, Brian. So throughout the process, the overriding intention of the government had been to seek detailed views in order to take further steps towards the government's fire safety and building safety reform agenda and to ensure that the people and residents in all buildings are regulated by the fire safety orders feel safe and also that they are safe, Brian, from fire regardless of where they live, stay or work. So responses that have already been provided to the proposals in the initial consultation will be considered alongside the responses to the forthcoming consultation. Further information on this process will shortly be available via the government website, which is GovUK. So I just want to go over a very brief summary of the responses, if you don't mind, Brian. So when it comes to strengthening the fire safety order and improving compliance, the government reports that in general, respondents have been broadly supportive of the proposals they've been consulted on, while offering comments and suggestions as to where the proposals could be improved, extended or modified. So respondents clearly agreed with the need to strengthen the fire safety order and improve compliance. There's also support for proposals to improve the quality of fire risk assessments, including a requirement that any individual engaged by the responsible person would need to undertake all or any part of the fire assessment should actually be competent and support in relation to the requirements of responsible persons to record their completed fire risk assessments. So moving on from that, the proposals to facilitate the identification of responsible persons and improve their cooperation and coordination with one another where they share or otherwise have duties in respect to the same premises, have also been met with support. The majority of respondents agreed with the proposals to enhance the provision of information between the responsible persons and residents. So too the government's proposal to ensure the preservation of fire safety information over a building's lifetime. But there were mixed reviews regarding the maintenance of buildings under the fire safety order and the role of residents, as well as this in relation to charging for enforcement activity. There is support, however, 
for charging for formal enforcement notifications, such as enforcement notices and prohibition notices. But those views expressed in relation to charging for other enforcement activity was somewhat more varied, Brian. There was also some agreement on charging proposals, but thinking appears to be diverse as far as the circumstances in which this might be deemed appropriate. A recurring theme throughout many of the responses is the perceived need to consider other risk factors in addition to the building's height in order to determine the extent of the fire safety measures necessary to mitigate them. This point was particularly emphasised in relation to higher risk workplaces. It's also clear that many respondents believe strengthened guidance would be required wherever changes are made to ensure an understanding of any new regulations or requirements and also to support compliance. So, Brian, as I said, there's a lot to digest there. And we're not even we're not even halfway through this uh, story because you really did it in great detail. So actually, I'm gonna, if you don't mind, I'm going to throw it to you to give us even more insight on it, if that's OK. Yes, thank you, Mark, of course. Well, in terms of the Grenfell Tower Inquiry Phase 1 recommendations, the respondents are largely supportive of many of the proposals outlined. Proposals on the requirement for responsible persons to provide specific fire safety information to residents received high levels of agreement, for example. There was also a strong agreement for the proposal of building plans to be shared with fire and rescue services, including floor plans and the location of key firefighting systems. A further proposal requiring responsible persons to provide premises information boxes for high-rise residential buildings which would include evacuation plans and another requirement for wayfinding signage to be provided on all stories, both received strong support. While respondents generally agreed with the three proposals on personal emergency evacuation plans outlined in the consultation process, many have commented on the need to consider and address the legal, financial and practical implications arising from this as the policy intention is developed further. Section 3 is focused on improving the effectiveness of consultation between building control bodies and fire and rescue authorities. On matters relating to the former and their consultation with the latter, the majority of respondents agree on the need for clear guidance and standardisation to ensure a smoother process and for clarity and improvements in information provision. Most respondents also agree that additional consultation points could be specified in legislation or guidance, and also that there should be a statutory timeframe for responses by fire and rescue authorities to consultation requests from building control bodies themselves. There was also support, Mark, for strengthening the requirements for handing over fire safety information to responsible persons whenever building work is completed. In light of the findings of the consultation, the government will now take action to amend the fire safety order through the Building Safety Bill in order to strengthen the provision relating to statutory guidance issued under Article 50 of that order. Specifically, Mark, the government will require that where the responsible person appoints an individual to conduct or review the fire risk assessment, they must be competent to do so. This is a recurring theme. The government will also require that all responsible persons must record their completed fire risk assessments, record and as necessary update their contact information and take reasonable steps to identify themselves to all other responsible persons involved. The government also outlines that more work is required to further develop policy in relation to fees and charges, as you've mentioned, Mark. Also, forced fire alarms, maintenance, the provision of information to residents and higher risk workplace buildings. As such, the government will continue to consider the responses received to the initial consultation process and also engage with stakeholders with a view towards informing policy development in these areas. Subject to the Fire Safety Bill gaining royal assent, of course, the government intends to lay regulations in the Houses of Parliament before the second anniversary of the Grenfell Tower Inquiry Phase 1 report, which will deliver on the inquiry's recommendations. These will include measures around checking fire doors and lifts, for example. The fire safety consultation included a commitment to overhaul the existing guidance under the fire safety order. 
The government established a guidance steering group to provide direction and expertise in the overhaul of fire safety autocentric guidance in recognition that new and revised guides will be needed to reflect changes coming out of the fire safety bill itself and any other legislation affecting the regulatory reform order. The government has split this work into three tranches to align with those potential amendments and will make sure that the guidance supports responsible persons, enforcing authorities, fire risk assessors and anyone else affected by the changes such that they can fully understand their new duties going forward. Responses from the government's consultation indicate that revised guidance will be an important element in delivering the outcomes of the process. The findings of the consultation will also be used to support this work. So quite a lot to digest there, Mark. Yeah, a lot to digest. Uh, it's it's a massive news story that's um, that's come out, and uh, it's not the only big story that's coming out. So, Brian, what's the next one you want to cover today? Fire and rescue services across England have been praised in the latest State of Fire report, including their ability to respond to a broad range of emergencies with commendable skill and professionalism. The report also highlights that fire service staff are absolutely committed to protecting their local communities. Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary and Fire and Rescue Services finds that fire and rescue services have risen to the challenges of the pandemic. Inspectorate welcomes the proposed changes deemed necessary to improve fire and building safety and also notes that progress has been made when it comes to introducing a code of ethics. The document's author, Mark, namely Sir Tom Windsor, Her Majesty's Chief Inspector, states that it's not a sector which is standing still and also that it's encouraging to see fire and rescue services responding constructively to last year's report. Commenting on the latest report, the National Fire Chiefs Council's Chair Roy Wilshire observed, I'm incredibly proud of everything fire and rescue services have achieved, with a particular emphasis on how staff rose to the challenge and undertook the incredible work related to the pandemic. I'm very pleased to see the Inspectorate's report recognises this, the professionalism of staff and the Council's own national role to make this happen. Wilshire continued, quite rightly, the report also acknowledges that fire and rescue services are not standing still, with progress being made in many areas. This is all supported and underpinned by the Council's national programmes of work. For example, I'm very pleased that the report praises our inclusion strategy and our online platform to disseminate information and best practice right across the UK's fire and rescue services. Protection is a key focus of the National Fire Chief Council's work, with a dedicated national team working on that issue in conjunction with government and the fire sector itself. This is both in response to the Grenfell Tower tragedy and subsequent government building safety reviews. According to Roy Wilshire, the failure of the building regulation system is abundantly clear, yet it's imperative that the consequences of this are not placed at the door of the fire and rescue service. Wilshire observed, the issues are systemic. The fire and rescue service is part of a much bigger solution and playing a leading role across the building fire safety landscape. For both the council and the fire and rescue service, this protection role will require continued funding to ensure that fire and rescue services are appropriately resourced to manage this emerging area of risk. Her Majesty's Inspectorate has asserted that significant reform is needed, both locally and nationally. Those identified areas for improvement include a lack of race and gender diversity, a necessary change in the law to give chief fire officers operational independence, and also the belief that government's allocation of funding should be reviewed. The Inspectorate also suggests that strong leadership is needed to shape the future of the fire service going forward. Addressing these various areas of concern, Wilshire responded, much of the necessary work simply cannot be achieved by chief fire officers and fire and rescue services in isolation. That belief is echoed by the report, which states that the sector needs clear national direction. We support the call for reform, which needs a measured, resourced and coordinated approach. It's part of a much bigger picture, which includes government and a range of other stakeholders and partners playing a vital role. Wilshire is particularly interested to see how the forthcoming government fire reform white paper will help to shape the fire and rescue service in the future. What are your thoughts on all of this, Mark? 
Well, you know, there's a lot, again, to digest there. I'm not sure a lot of answers are given there, Brian, other than, you know, potentially more funding, um, which is always a standard answer from FBU and National Fire Chiefs Council and something I can completely understand. But then they are right. The role of the firefighter in the fire and rescue service is continually evolved and they're doing far more stuff i mean they are a great resource for information on fire safety now when you go through the websites as as they said diversity you know we talk about employment diversity whether it be um uh, to have more women into the fire and rescue service or have people from more ethnic minority backgrounds in a lot of great work is going on there but i think at the moment, a lot will reply on what happens next. Uh, they've almost pushed that down and saying, OK, government, what are you going to suggest next in upcoming reports? There's not a whole lot of answers there from them in terms of what needs to be done other than the key one of we need more funding, as I said. And, and, and Brian, it's a difficult time to be asking for additional funding. We're in the middle of the worst economic crisis in living memory outside of wartime. Probably will end up being worse than wartime by the time we're through this awful pandemic. And we've all seen nationally arguments about are pay rises for frontline workers enough? And they do a fantastic job. The Fire and Rescue Service do an amazing job of keeping buildings and people safe. That's that's what they do, and, and we need them, and they do a vital, vital public service and a very dangerous public service, and we should be very grateful for the work that they do, and they should be paid absolutely fairly and resourced as best as possible. But unfortunately, you know, the you know, the accountancy side of that, of balancing the books, is very difficult when the state is having to fund a large part of the economy at the moment. So although I have sympathy for them wanting more funding, I think it's going to be very difficult to get that out of the government coming forward. Because we all know what's going to happen here. We've already seen it with corporation tax. There is going to be tax hikes over the next few years. There's going to have to be in order to repay the damage that coronavirus has done. And then there's going to be a massive bun fight, Brian, for where does that extra funding go to balance the books? Where can it be invested further in frontline services? And that is a very tricky balancing act for the government to do. And my gut says, and I'm sure people listening to this will agree, my gut says their priority is not going to be looking at investing further in the fire and rescue service than they have to. There'll be more investment, but not huge, great, real terms um, more investment because they'll be focusing far more on either frontline NHS services or reducing the national deficit. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's fair comments raised by Roy and everybody in there, absolutely, and we cannot take away the great job that they do, but also I'm not seeing what answers outside of funding are really going to happen, and I think actually, to be fair, that's what NFCC have said. Okay, come and tell us what's next if you want us to keep modifying the Fire and Rescue Service. Our first guest on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Niall Rowan, CEO at the Association for Specialist Fire Protection. Niall took on the role of CEO at the start of 2017, having served as the Association's technical officer since 2010. Having taken over just before the Grenfell Tower tragedy, Niall has led the ASFP through a period of huge change, both for the Association itself and the fire and construction sectors in general. During his tenure, Niall has played an influential role, providing input to the full range of government and industry committees tasked with transforming the building safety landscape and improving competency right across the built environment, as well as significantly raising the ASFP's profile as the go-to authority on passive fire protection. He has also presided over a period of substantial growth for the association and overseen the launch of its highly successful foundation 
foundation course in passive fire protection, which itself enables passive fire protection professionals to demonstrate their competency and study towards level 2 and 3 qualifications awarded by the Institution of Fire Engineers. Recently, Niall has announced that he'll be standing down as CEO after this year's AGM. On that basis, I spoke with him about what's next on a personal level, his views on the competency agenda and the building safety bill, and also several other key areas. This is what he had to say. What do you believe to be the most important achievement you realised during your time as leader of the ASFP? Well, I noticed you answered the question achievement singular. Well, I'd like to think there's more than that. And certainly the achievements that the ASFP has made are not just the result of, of myself as the CEO. Uh, I suppose the most important thing is the launch of the ASFP training course uh, and syllabus in collaboration with the Institution of Fire Engineers to ensure there are appropriate qualifications for passive fire protection. The ASFP level two and level three courses to give rise to the level three certificate in passive fire protection are the only off-call recognised courses in passive fire protection. Are there any desired accomplishments that you had earmarked that perhaps you didn't have time to address? I would like to have done more in the way of training, particularly in the way of practical training. If you look at what we offer, I mentioned the, the certificates in passive fire protection, and we also have an introductory course. We have a bit of a gap in the middle in terms of practical skills-based training that, that less so members, but often non-members are asking us to do. And that's something that I, I would like to have done and have not managed to get progressed. Having said that, I think that's that's gone on the car because there's an overwhelming desire for people to be trained in the installation of passive fire protection. And there is precious little other than manufacturers training. What's going to be next for you, Niall, on an individual level once you stood down as the ASFP CEO? Well, I carry on till the end of April and then the new CEO, Steve Davis, comes in and I will be retained by the ASFP. I'll be working two days a week as the ASFP's technical and regulatory affairs officer. And that means I will be dealing with technical issues, as I did before I became CEO, but also be looking at all lots of the new regulations that are coming down, like the Building Safety Bill and the Fire Safety Bill, and how they can implement, how they will change the association. At present, now there's much talk about the competency agenda right across the fire sector, and it's clear there needs to be a change in mindset here. What are your views on this issue? Well, the, the overarching change in mindset that's needed is the change in mindset in, in the in the in the construction organisation from from cheapest is best to to best is best. So you know, the, you know we welcome the the welcome and are part of the competency agenda that's being discussed at the moment. There is a bit there we talk about this overarching competency framework and a British standard for this, and there's this work going on at high level. But down at the ground level, you find that different trade associations and organisations are carrying on doing their own thing. It's all a bit fragmented at the moment. At some point, let's hope that those two, the overarching framework and, and the organisations doing their own thing will meet together and mesh together. But that's a bit of a concern I have at the moment. In parallel, there's also much discussion concerning the Building Safety Bill and the Fire Safety Bill. What are the key elements that stand out from your perspective, Niall? 
Dealing with the building safety bill first, to me, the key elements are the gateways, because the gateway stages mean effectively the end of design and build contracts, where a contractor is appointed and design elements are uh, being developed on the hoof, as it were. What this means is that fire safety design will have to be considered right at the beginning of the process. And this is crucial to making sure the right design decisions are made in order for the building to be made properly, rather than trying to cobble it up at the end. And finally, Niall, what do you believe is the single most important issue to be addressed in the passive fire protection market going forward? For me, it's the the change in culture that's needed in the construction industry and, and is starting to happen. A change from uh, cost being the ultimate driver to looking at value more, to making sure that doing the right job is the correct thing to do rather than the cheapest job. And if you look at that, that will have one of the major impacts on passive fire protection and indeed fire safety in buildings. So back to the news now, Brian, and as we said earlier, there is a lot of key stories coming out, but this may be one of the biggest things that we talk about all year. So the Health and Safety Executive has appointed the inaugural Chief Inspector of Buildings. So the HSC has announced the appointment of a Chief Inspector of Buildings to establish and lead the new Building Safety Regulator. Presently, the HSC's Director of Building Safety and Construction, Peter Baker, will take up the post with immediate effect. The government asked the HSE to establish a new building safety regulator in the wake of the Grenfell Tower disaster and following the recommendations made in the Building a Safer Future report, which was published by Dame Judith Hackett in the wake of the independent review of building regulations fire safety, which Dame Judith carried out. So in his new role, Baker will head up the building safety regulator to deliver the new regime for high-risk buildings, oversee work designed to increase the competency levels of all professionals working on buildings, and ensure effective oversight of the entire building safety environment. Baker will also be the first head of building control profession and lead on the work to provide independent expert advice to the industry, government, landlords and residents when it comes to building safety. So commenting on his new role, Brian, Baker said, I'm honoured to be appointed as the first Chief Inspector of Buildings and for the opportunity to play a lead role in bringing about the biggest change in building safety for a generation. I look forward to working with the government, industry, partner regulators and residents alike to shape and deliver a world-class risk-based regulatory system focused on safety and standards within buildings that residents can have confidence in and that we can all be proud of. So just finishing off on this, Brian, uh, Baker has over 30 years experience with the HSE, gained in a role of inspector in a number of senior operational posts, and he's dealt with a wide range of industry sectors, including the role of the HSE's Chief Inspector of Construction. Since 2017, he's had the HSE's involvement in the government's building safety programme. So I don't think this is a surprise appointment by any stretch of the imagination, Brian. It seems like a very, very sensible appointment. And obviously, you know, I wish him all the best in his new role because this is going to be absolutely key. I and mean, I've worked closely with the HSE over the years for our health and safety magazine called Health and Safety Matters. So we work very, very closely with the HSE. Seeing them now have a more regulatory role in the fire sector, I don't think is a bad thing at all. I think it makes a lot of common sense. So I think there's a couple of things that you'd like to add to this, Brian. 
There are, Mark. It's a bit of background to begin with, really. The Building Safety Regulator and its functions, of course, form part of the draft Building Safety Bill that was published in July last year. The HSC is leading the work to design, develop and deliver the Building Safety Regulator's functions on behalf of government. It is also recruiting across a wide range of roles and expertise to make sure the new building safety regime itself is fit for purpose. Indeed, the HSC is working with industry, the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, the Home Office, local authorities, fire and rescue services, residents and other stakeholders alike to pave the way for the fully-fledged building safety regulator. Now, Sarah Newton, chair of the HSC, Mark, has congratulated Peter Baker on his appointment. Sarah has said, Peter has a long track record of working in partnership with industry and other regulators to bring about behavioural and cultural change that improves people's safety. His deep understanding of assessment and management when it comes to hazards and risks makes him ideally suited to shape and lead the implementation of the new building safety regime. Dame Judith Hackett, the independent advisor to the government on building safety and also chair of the transition board, has commented, I'm delighted to hear of Peter Baker's appointment as the new chief inspector of buildings. With his impressive background of experience gaining regulating both major hazards, industries and construction, he brings a wealth of knowledge to this important new role. I very much look forward to working with Peter as the new building safety regulator is established and as we move to establish a new regime wherein people can be confident that their homes are safe and fit for purpose. Lord Greenhaug, the Minister for Building and Fire Safety, has also added, Peter will use his own and indeed the HSE's wealth of experience to implement a tougher regulatory regime. I very much look forward to working with him and his team to ramp up engagement with residents and the sector as part of the biggest changes to building safety in a generation. There's a comprehensive plan in place to remove unsafe cladding, support leaseholders, restore confidence to this part of the housing market and also ensure that this situation never arises again. It's certainly going to be interesting to see how this new appointment pans out then, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I said, you know, we wish him all the best in this role. It's an important role and I think it's a really massive step forwards and, and should be welcomed. So, Brian, we've got one more news story to wrap up um, the news for this week. What have you got for us? We have. It's all to do with the Home Office, Mark. Uh, building owners could now face unlimited fines for breaches of regulations following new measures being brought in to strengthen fire safety. As part of the government's work designed to ensure that people are safe in their own homes, these limitless fines will be handed down to anyone caught obstructing or impersonating a fire inspector, as well as those who breach fire safety regulations under the fire safety order itself. Initially announced as part of the government's response to the fire safety consultation, which we mentioned earlier on the podcast, the new measures will come into force as part of the legislation in the Building Safety Bill. They will amend the fire safety order and include a requirement for fire risk assessments to be recorded for each building and improve how fire safety information is handed over throughout the lifetime of a given structure. In tandem, the Home Office has also announced a further cash boost of £10 million for fire and rescue authorities right across England, on top of the £6 million already set aside in the Fire COVID-19 Contingency Fund. This will help with additional tasks related to managing the pandemic, such as driving ambulances and assisting at testing and vaccination centres. Fire Minister Lord Greenhalgh has said, everyone should be safe in the buildings where they live, stay or work. Our new measures will improve fire safety and help to save lives, but will also take firm action against those who fail in their duty to keep people safe. Our incredible fire and rescue services have played a crucial role in our response to the pandemic, from assisting at vaccination centres through to driving ambulances. This is precisely why we're giving them this cash boost, such that they can then continue their life-saving efforts. National Fire Chiefs Council Chair Roy Wilshire has explained 
The NFCC welcomes this extra funding in support of COVID activities carried out by fire and rescue services across England. Firefighters are responsible for administering around one in every 240 vaccinations for members of the public. Ultimately, we want to see safer buildings for residents. We're fully committed to working constructively with the Home Office and other partners on the Grenfell Tower inquiry recommendations, as well as other key fire safety policy areas. Just to recap then, Mark, the new measures announced by the government will improve the quality of fire risk assessments and the competence of those who complete them, ensure that vital fire safety information is preserved over the lifespan of all regulated buildings, improve cooperation and coordination among those people responsible for fire safety and make it easier to identify precisely who they are, strengthen enforcement action with anyone impersonating or obstructing a fire inspector facing unlimited fines, strengthen guidance issued under the fire safety order such that any failure to follow it may be considered in court proceedings as evidence of a breach, and last but not least, improve the engagement between building control bodies and fire and rescue authorities in reviewing plans for building work. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a really good step forward as well. I've been quite outspoken in the past on podcasts on my views that I want to see fines increased and increased to really act as a deterrent. But actually, I'm going to sidestep this one, Brian, because it's almost as though we planned this. I actually asked this exact question about this topic, about um, what you've just covered to Warren Spencer and all of you know Warren Spencer is a regular guest on this podcast he's prosecuted over 200 cases under the fire safety order so actually I'm going to throw over to Warren now because I interviewed him earlier we covered this and a number of other topics including something that I think you guys are going to be very interested with a chance to get some real legal insight in a conference that we're running with Warren in May so sat down with Warren earlier today and here's what he had to say Hi Warren, how are you? I'm fine, thank you Mark, and yourself? Yeah, good, good. We've got a lot to go through today and then the great thing is we can actually revisit a topic that um, you were giving us a bit of an insight to a couple of podcasts ago. So a few editions of the podcast ago, we talked about Article 27 and potentially powers being a bit more serious and even leading to potential of unlimited fines. I think you've got a bit of an update for us on this. Can you share it with us? Yes, I posted on LinkedIn this week an article which shows that the governments are thinking about increasing the fine levels of the Article 27 offences, which is effectively obstructing a fire officer when carrying out an audit or an inspection or trying to find out information about who the responsible persons are for premises. And this is something we talked about, as you say, in the summer, um, because one of the bugbears for me is that it, it, it's an offence Parts of Article 27 and obstructing an officer are what we call summary-only matters. Um, and summary-only matters can only be dealt with in the magistrates. And also they're limited to a level three fine, which at the moment is £1,000. Mm. And my view was most all the other offences under the fire safety order are uh, either way matters, which means that they can be dealt with at the Crown Court or the Magistrates Court. And also it means that they can be the subject of unlimited fines. And I think what the government intend to do now, whether it's as a, as a result of my lobbying over, over a number of years or the conversation I had with the Home Office in the summer, I, I don't know. But I'm not going to try and take credit for it. But but um, the, the government seem to now accept that you, you can't have people committing lesser offences of obstruction than the substantive offences themselves. And, and it seems now that the, the order is going to be amended to make uh, those matters either way offences, which would lead to the imposition of unlimited fines. 
Well, I think you should be proud of that. It is something you've been quite outspoken on for a, for a period of time, and you have been very vocal on it, and we talked about it a few times before, and I think it's a step in the right direction. Now, we've talked in the past also about fines being used for what they should, should be used for, which is to be a real deterrent, isn't it, to stop people flouting you know, the fire safety order. We've touched on it before, but I think it's a good time to just quickly revisit it. Is that something that concerns you in this country, that... Over on the health and safety side, on the health and safety executive doing enforcement, you can get multi-million pound fines. Fire safety offences, obviously mainly prosecuted by fire and rescue services, seem to have a much lower fine. So the talk about unlimited fines here, is this something that you would support? Or do you think that's a, would that be more of a deterrent to have higher fines imposed on breaches to fire safety laws? Well, I think they are coming. They're, 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 they're now beginning to, to, to grow and grow. And that's as a result of um, three things. Um, the, the Legal Services uh, Act in 2015 and the, in, the imposition of the increased unlimited fines in 2016. And then there's clearly the, the Grenfell effect and um, the fact that the courts now are taking fire safety matters more seriously. Um, our Blackhurst Bud um, figures, uh, a study that we did last year, show that the fines that are now being imposed are in the region of uh, 40 to 50% more than the average prior to Grenfell. And uh, as it happened, there were three things that happened in 15, 16 and 17, Grenfell being at 17, that have led the courts now to having the ability to impose more fines. As far as obstructing fire officers is concerned, I always draw the analogy with the roadside breath test when people are arrested for drink driving. If you do not complete the, the breath test properly and appropriately, you will get an automatic 18-month ban. And if you were to be found to be over the limit, having given the roadside test, it starts at 12 months. So effectively, by not taking the test, you're going to get a more severe fine than you might if you do take the test. And, and so that's why it's, it's always been at odds for me that the fire safety order actually penalises you less for obstructing an officer in his duty uh, than the substantive offence. So it, as I agree with you, it's a step in the right direction. So we promised on the last edition of the podcast that we'd have a bit of an announcement on this one. Now, you know that we joined forces at the end of last year and did a a day conference, didn't we, which was on the new um, building safety bill and fire safety bill. We had a great attendance and it was really well enjoyed by people. Well, a lot of people asked for a follow up on that. And that is what we can announce today. On the 14th of May, Fire Safety Matters and, and Warren Spencer's Blackhurst Bud will be doing a two-hour digital conference or digital seminar, whatever you want to call it, on enforcing the fire safety order. You know, this will be Warren obviously presenting it, but also James Ed, that's also part of Blackhurst Bud. I know I always do this preamble, Warren, about how many cases he's prosecuted under the fire safety order, and it's now over 200. No one has prosecuted more cases in the UK under the fire safety order than than Warren. And this session is something that you guys really won't want to miss. It's £99 plus VAT per ticket. And the way to sign up to it is just go to the Fire Safety Matters website, go to fsmatters.com and click on the webinars tab at the top navigation. So fsmatters.com, you can sign up there. But don't listen to me, I'm but a humble journalist. Warren, what can people expect if they come and listen to that two hour conference? Well, I'm, I'm always amazed that anybody wants to listen to me anyway, because um, first of all, it's fire safety, and secondly, it's it's law, and therefore, it, by its very nature, it's quite a dry subject. 
Um, but one of the areas that I get asked about a lot are the cases that I do. And, and when I do the training uh, that I do, uh, it, it, there's no doubt that the most popular aspect of the training is when I talk about the cases that, that we've done. And, and so uh, I, what I'm going to do is, is to use um, a, f- a few of those cases and go through them almost start to finish um, and to explain the practicalities of how the order works and how the process of legal enforcement through the courts works um, by using that, those cases and, and, um, and trying to give you the, the facts of the case. I might have to anonymise certain things, but they're all cases that have been dealt with in real life terms and have been dealt with by the courts. And, and so we can take them and see what, been, what has been important to the court, what's been, what issues and points have been raised by the defence or by the prosecution if I've defended cases. And just to give a working example of how enforcement uh, works with fire safety order and, and the legal process. I mean, this couldn't be more relevant to our listeners and our readers. You guys are all responsible for fire safety in your workplaces. And obviously, with the fire safety order being the law that we will have to comply with in that situation, Warren's really going to go through seven key case studies, as he said, of real-life cases, just common failings. When we talked about what we were going to do here, the whole point was to give you inside information of common failings that are happening and how to make sure that you're not doing it as well, and the repercussions if you don't. And there are seven great case studies that Warren's going to share along with James Aird. And it takes place, as I said, on the 14th of May at 10.30am for two hours. And you can register up via our website, which is www.fsmatters.com and click on the webinar tab in the main navigation. I'm sure I'll be sending emails out about this as well and you'll see it all over Warren and my social media. But definitely, definitely worth coming. Places are limited and it'll be very interactive always is this is your chance to get legal advice effectively for free i know it's 99 pounds plus that but i can tell you warren charges more than that if you want real legal advice so get the we want to make it your session so there'll be an easy way to ask questions and one thing that warren does is he breaks up all parts of the presentation for multiple q and a's in as we can get through as as, as many as possible and we'll, we'll get through all the questions to be quite frank so Definitely, definitely join us on the 14th of May at 10.30, fsmatters.com. Click on the webinars tab. So anyway, Warren, just as we sign off now before you're back for the next edition, if people want to get in touch with you between now and then, what's the easiest way to do so? As I mentioned, uh, through LinkedIn, uh, I'm on Twitter and also Blackhurst Bud and the Fire Safety Law website. Brilliant. Thanks, Warren. It's great to hear from you and we look forward to getting you back on the next edition of the podcast. Thank you, Mark. guest on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Andy Speak, National Technical Manager at Fire and Carbon Monoxide Alarms Manufacturer, ACO. Andy joined ACO back in 2016 in a technical capacity and became IT Manager. Coming from a B2B IT background, including roles in technical support and consultancy, his skills were readily transferable. As National Technical Manager, Andy's primary role is managing the technical department, including a dedicated technical team which deals with customer inquiries and providing technical support to the ACO sales team. The role also involves over seeing and developing ACO's expert installer training scheme. Andy works closely with ACO's parent company, EI Electronics, to research and develop new products. In a pro bono capacity, he represents ACO and a number of leading industry organisations, including the British Standards Institution and the Council of Gas Detection and Environmental Monitoring. Earlier this week, Mark chatted with Andy about system installer competency, the role of training in the sector and the cloud-based alarm solutions that ACO is bringing to market. 
Hi Andy, great to see you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you very much, Mark. Yeah, very well, thank you. Well, it's great to see you again and I uh, really want to focus on a lot of great stuff that ACO are doing at the moment. So for those that aren't too familiar with ACO, can you tell us about some of the latest products you've had out, please? Yeah, of course. So something that is gaining a lot of traction and we've had on the market for some time is the gateway. So this is very much a stepping stone towards the, the, the future, uh, IoT, connected home. There's many, many buzzwords and um, yeah, everything is talking to one another, whether that be light bulbs, telephones, TVs, and it's no surprise that that alarms are exactly the same. Our, our fire alarms, our CO alarms, heat alarms, they want to talk to the gateway and the gateway is able to talk to the cloud. So data extraction has been a massive part of, of the direction of our company for a good long time. But but previously, you'd have to be physically there with the product. You'd have to be on site or, or maybe maybe within RF distance to the product. Um, whereas now having a gateway that sends it up to the cloud so you can be sat anywhere in the world and not just access one property, but potentially you, you could be a, a large landlord with 40,000 properties and, and you can find out exactly what's going on when they were last tested. Are any of them in fault? Are any of them, in, and more importantly, are any of them going triggering an alarm and have active live notifications? So that's a big part of, of what we're doing at the moment. That's, that's gaining a lot of traction. Now, I don't want you to give away any trade secret here, Andy, but... Can you give us a little bit of an insight into what might be next in your product pipeline? Yeah, of course, no problem at all. Well, it very much leads on from my answer to the last question, that the gateway, as I said before, is a bit of a stepping stone. So at the moment, our alarms, whether be heat alarms, smoke alarms, and our carbon monoxide alarms talk to this gateway, which talks to the cloud. But the next stage is, is adding additional sensors to that. So uh, later on this year, we'll be introducing uh, environmental sensors. So we're talking humidity, temperature, carbon dioxide, environmental sensors. So these aren't alarms. These will sit quietly in a property and, and give landlords insights on condensation, damp, mold, uh, indoor air pollutants or, or allergens. But it'll also help to identify um, not victims, but, but occupants who could be at risk of fuel poverty or, or are at risk of hot, cold, hot homes or cold homes um, and, and various other things. There's a lot of links from the fire side to some of these other environmental impacts. So a lot of a lot of crossovers and the more sensor data you can introduce, the more clarity you, you can find with the insights that you're able to give to the, the residents as well as the landlord, really. Now, we've got a very varied readership and obviously listenership to, to this podcast. It, it ranges, Andy, because they could be end users, they could be installers, they could be consultants, insurers, risk assessors. But they also come from a huge wide range of areas that they work in. You know, it, it could be working for a major manufacturer like Weetabix, yeah. for example. They, they could be working for a huge retail group like Arcadia or a Formula One team. You know, that role is so wide. I mean, I'm very, very familiar with ACO. But not everybody, maybe. So I want to make this, this point of this section of the podcast is to really get people to learn about different kinds of technologies and products and services that they can relate to their day-to-day -day job and facilities. So could you maybe share one or two examples of some areas that, that you work in? You know, maybe a big focus for you might be, of course, high-rise residential premises. You touched on that a bit a moment ago. So can you give us insight into where some key areas is for your business? Absolutely, yep. So we're very much in the domestic market. So domestic fire, carbon monoxide, and I've just mentioned about the fact that um, there's additional sensors. So 
it's kind of widening that scope to home safety would, would be a good broad description of, of kind of where we're going, really. But that also touches on assistive areas, assistive technology, you know, occupants living in their home for, for, for longer and longer now. So having technology to, to aid in that living in the homes for longer and longer is, is again, a massive part of, of what potentially we're able to offer. But as far as what most people would know us as are for doing smoke alarms, domestic smoke alarms. Our, our primary product range are, are mains-powered devices. We do offer battery-powered devices as well. But in, in the world of standards, those who are sad enough to know the British standards on this, but, but grade D alarms, we do grade D1. So these are mains-powered alarms for battery backup. Typically, what you'd find in most properties would be, or at least I'd like to hope that you'd see in most properties, would be an alarm in the escape route. So that's typically your hallway and landing and then your principal habitable rooms and at a minimum that should really be covering your kitchen it's a high risk room we know most fires tend to start in kitchens but then equally your living room is your second high risk room although most fires start in the kitchen more fatalities come from fires which start from from living rooms but it doesn't just end there we've got a lot of customers who are also covering bedrooms If, if you think about it the risks in bedrooms can be just the same as in a living room. You've got the same soft furnishings, the same electronic devices. Um, people could be spending just as much time in the bedrooms as they could be in a living room. So, again, we're seeing a lot more of an increase in alarms being installed in other areas within the property as well. And bedrooms is, is one such area. But, again, this is a typical simple installation. It could be in a single bungalow. It could be in a high-rise flat. It could be in a large two-story or, or a lot of our products go into HMOs and it depends on what scenario the products are going into to, to quite the, the scope of the installation. So uh, sprinklers are becoming a big part of the domestic market now. Wales has introduced sprinklers on new build properties for some time. We're seeing them more and more in high-rise buildings, even some low-rise buildings and legislation is very much driving that. And, and there's, a, there's a big reason to interconnect sprinklers with alarms. So hopefully your alarms will always be triggering before your sprinklers do in an ideal world, if the society correctly. But in the scenario that for whatever reason, maybe a fire starts in an area which doesn't have an alarm in there and the sprinkler activates, having that interconnected with the, with the alarms and give audibility throughout the property to that. So that, that's one area, but we can interconnect with literally anything. So we've got some properties that they want to have a strobe outside the front door. So the fire and rescue service can go straight to that corridor, immediately look down it and see exactly that the property which has an alarm in there. It could be that you want to trigger a communication to a telecare device. I mentioned assistive living before, but we, we, we can do that. So literally, that there's, I could carry this on and on because the scope of where we can interconnect to is is vast, really. And then with the introduction of the data extraction and, and the IoT and the connected home, that just widens that scope even more, really. So to, that hopefully gives you a little bit of a flavour without going into too much detail. But but yeah, very much in the domestic market and um, and pr- principally our main core business historically has always been with um, social landlords uh, not just social landlords private landlords anybody can go into an electrical wholesale and and see our products available there but, but yeah a lot of our customers are very large so this is why they're, they're looking for solutions that can provide property stock of maybe 20 40 000 homes with solutions that they can roll out and make their life easier in words of compliance, making sure they're compliant, making sure they're up to date with the British standards. And again, that's very much driven our product development. That the gateway I was talking about earlier, the environmental sensors, they've all come directly out of communication from our primary customer base. And these are the things that they're asking for, really. So hopefully that gives a bit of a 
bit of an insight. No, absolutely does, Andy. And, you know, a big part of our readership and listeners in it are local authorities, social housing providers, uh, social landlords, as you said, assisted living, construction companies as well, you know, major home construction. So that will definitely be relevant to them. But I want to link that into a a relevant topic right now. Since the Hackett Review, competency is right at the front of the agenda for fire safety these days. Now, like many other manufacturers, you will obviously proudly say that your products are of a great standard. But how important is installer competency to making sure that your products and systems are installed adequately? And is ACO offering any kind of support to ensure that these systems and products are actually installed safely? Yeah, really good question. I'm glad you've asked that. And uh, absolutely, on on all scores, I can say a positive answer on that. So our foundation of the business, three words, has always been quality, service and innovation. Uh, More recently, we've extended that to include education. So quality is always massively important. We we test everything multiple times. We don't manufacture in batches. These are safety products. So uh, it's vital that they work. Hopefully they never have to work, we hope, but, but it's vital that they do so. Quality has been really, really important and always has been. But the reason we've put the word education in there is, is again, this is such a massive part of our business. We have four mobile units pre-COVID times that we're regularly doing the rounds up and down the country and we'll be offering training four days a week out of those uh, mobile units. Just because the mobile units have stopped doesn't mean we've stopped our rollout. We've, we've adapted like the rest of the world. We've introduced webinars. We've been doing a lot of larger events recently, all totally free. So anybody can sign up to them if they're interested. And as uh, I said, a lot of them would be large social landlords, local authorities, but equally contractors. They will be designers, architects, um, absolutely anybody. So if you're interested in, in the technology, the way we're going, we'll have residents also involved in that. We do training with residents. Residents engagement is a huge part of that, that education element of our foundation. So we will talk to residents, we'll make sure that they understand the products that are going in the, in the property. And that sometimes stops that barrier that, that contractors might have when installing what the resident might see is, is an unpleasant device in the middle of the ceiling. They don't want to see it. And, and the moment you educate them, you explain to them what the alarms actually do, the fact that the, that the life safety products, they will save the life. Hopefully, they'll never have to, to, to come into use. But if you get them on board, that, that's a massive difference. So education is huge. But principally, the most area that we do education with is with contractors. We do a full expert installer scheme. It's CPD certified. We use the FIA for for certifying our um, CPD uh, qualifications. And that covers everything from standards, regulation, uh, design, commissioning, uh, fault finding. It starts to touch on the newer areas of uh, development, such as the gateway I mentioned earlier. But but it also covers other areas of legislation, like the Homes Act. Um, legislation is just ever-growing, becoming ever-complex. Compliance is forming a bigger part of things. And, and contractors, whereas in the commercial world, you might have a separate designer to an installer, and then somebody else commissions it. Often in the domestic world, that, that's one person. So the same person designing it is, is, is installing it, commissioning it. And yeah, having that knowledge is vastly important. So we do all of that. It's a really important part of what we do. And equally, that ties on to the service levels that we're able to offer when, when customers do have a problem or, or have any questions or anything like that. We can, we can assist on that end as well. 
So we want to talk about quality. I've got a bit of an exclusive that we can both reveal together today. So we're delighted to announce the launch of the Fire and Security Matters Awards, which is which is our awards, you know, Fire Safety Matters and Security Matters Magazine's award, and it's done in association and partnership with the Fire Industry Association. And a number of other key bodies are supporting that. BAFE, NSI, SSAIB, Institute of Fire Safety Managers, ACES UK, the Security Institute, IFEDA, to name but a few. The reason you and I are going to quickly talk about this, of course, is ACO have decided to support this in a big way. ACO have now confirmed to be the headline sponsor of the awards, and we're actually going to be opening entries for free for all of you listening from the 1st of May. So on the next podcast, I'll give you full details on how you can enter and the web address, but I'll give you a quick sneak peek now. Some of the categories for you interested in fire will be Innovation of the Year for Fire, Fire Manufacturer of the Year, Fire Safety Installer Integrator of the Year, Fire Safety Project of the Year, Fire Safety Manager of the Year, Fire Safety Team of the Year. Those are but some of the categories you could enter for free from the 1st of May, and it will all conclude with a gala dinner in March next year at the Rico Arena in Coventry, where um, you know we'll have a great lineup of entertainment. More importantly, really celebrate the great and the good of the fire and security industry. So there is a question in there for you, though. Can I ask you, Andy, why was ACO so keen to sign up to support this right from the get-go? Absolutely, yeah. Well, this immediately it, it fully aligns very much with our own strategy uh, of celebrating excellence within our own market, but as well as other adjacent markets as well. Competency and compliance are, are both massive topics and they're hugely important, really. We fully support the direction that, that this needs to go in and just aw- celebrating and awarding this is, is what needs to be done, really. Yeah, and a great thing is you've seen the amount of backing that we've already got from the associations. And, and that's what this is all about, really, if I'm honest. It is about the competency agenda that is at the forefront of the fire safety sector at the moment. And this is a chance to celebrate the great work that all of you do. You all play key roles in keeping businesses, property and people safe. So I would encourage you, and I will give you more information on the next podcast, and we're all over our websites, etc., Enter this for free. Celebrate yourself. Celebrate your product. Celebrate your team. Celebrate your own achievements because it's worth shouting about. What you do is very, very important. But finishing off here for a second, Andy, if people want to find out more about ACO, how can they get in touch with you guys? There's absolutely loads of ways of doing that, uh, ever growing every day, it would seem. So, first place to go is, is our website, um, www, although less important than that part, but aco.co.uk, and there's a link to pretty much everything I've spoken about and, and a load more. But not just that, we, we offer technical support, which can be accessed via the website, via uh, web chat, email, physically phone us up, go old school and give us a ring. We, we also offer video support. So you could be a contractor on site, you're unsure about a bit of wiring, give us a video call. We, we, we offer... Um, all sorts via Teams, uh, via Zoom, uh, even via WhatsApp. So we we, we can support contractors and customers wherever you are in in any different way. Same with the training. If you're interested in any of the training that I've mentioned, of course, it's had to adapt. Now, face-to-face meetings are happening less, but we're doing webinars. We're doing smaller little focus group training, and our regional managers are taking care of that. But but equally, all of that can be done, can be registered via the website. I I believe we've trained over 30,000 contractors to date, but that's ever growing all the time. But there's loads more initiatives starting up. We have an ACO installer 
community online. So that, that's very much a reward system for those who are familiar with our products and, and, and want to help other people who are involved in our products and learn more about them and, and maybe win something in the process. There's, there's prizes to be won and, and lots of benefits to be involved in that as well. So there's absolutely all sorts going on. But if you want to know any more about that, go to our website, give us a call. Uh, and yeah, happy to speak to you about all of that. And I can just underline, it's a great facility that ACO have got. I have been round there. They've got great training facilities. It's a crying shame at the moment because of coronavirus that you can't necessarily get there face to face. But these restrictions are soon, we all hope, lifting and we hopefully normal service resume for all of us. And it really is an impressive facility. So well worth getting in touch. So www.aico.co.uk is the web address. And it's always great to catch up with you. Thanks for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Mark. All the best. us to the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Niall Rowan from the ASFP, Warren Spencer of Black Curse Bud Solicitors, and also Andy Speak of ACO for their highly valued and engaging contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMPodcast. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG. Please do like and share the content of our regular podcasts and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term Fire Safety Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time. <laughs>